0: Can I bother you for directions? Walking down the street in a strange city, my cell phone battery dead, I walked up to someone and asked them for directions. They kindly offered them to me. The cool thing is, after they gave me directions, they still had them. Hey, it's Ben Skoda, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. Akimbo. Leona Helmsley ran a significant chain of hotels with a lot of cash flow. She was rich, worth billions of dollars. Her lawyer relates that when he was having tea with her, going over her tax evasion conviction, a servant, I'm putting that word in quotes, brought her a cup of tea on a saucer. She noticed that the saucer had a drop of water still on it. She smashed the saucer and the cup to the floor and then insisted that the servant get on his knees, clean up the broken pottery, and beg to get his job back. Leona Helmsley died, leaving $12 million to her dog, Trouble, and nothing to two of her grandchildren. They called her the Queen of Mean, for a reason. What's interesting about this story is that Leona Helmsley got a perverse sort of pleasure out of stripping the dignity from the man who was serving her. And dignity is an interesting concept. Where does it come from? Let's start with this. A dignitary. What's a dignitary? Well, a dignitary is supposed to act dignified. But a dignitary is a big deal. It's like a king. As Marshall Salins and David Graeber have pointed out, kings have a fascinating history in human culture because we have a long tradition of treating kings like gods, like the other. We often expect kings will not follow the traditional rules of society, that they will break our rules because that's their privilege as kings. Leona Helmsley thought that she was a king. Leona Helmsley needed to demonstrate her power by not acting like a dignitary, but by stripping dignity away from the people around her. Dignity was invented about the same time we invented the modern economy. The word dignity does not appear once in the New Testament. The idea that human beings have value simply because they are human beings is a new one. Immanuel Kant, the godfather of modern philosophy, was one of the first voices to write extensively about this idea of dignity. Dignity, that thing we get not because we've earned it, but because, simply because of our potential as humans, we deserve it. What does it mean to give someone else dignity? To turn on a light? To give them at least a modicum of respect? Our culture is filled with stories of what happens when it's stripped away. Of prisoners forced to eat loaves where all the ingredients are baked into one, inedible mass, not because it's cheaper for the prison, but because it strips away their dignity, or employees in low-status jobs who are forced to work in uncomfortable conditions because the boss wants to show he has more power. In his most recent book, Dave Eggers quotes a Yemeni expression. The expression is, you're in front of my face. I think it probably shares an origin with the Zulu expression, "sawubana," I see you. Together, what they mean is that other human beings have a place in our lives. That culture causes us to understand that when we see each other, when we are with each other, when we grant each other dignity as opposed to choosing to strip it away, we, become more human. We become more alive. Our culture gets better if we let it. I think it's interesting that the same time that dignity was showing up on the horizon, we were also inventing the modern economy. And what the modern economy means is that more and more people got to act like kings, that hierarchies were getting put in place all over a hierarchy that was navigated by a single axis, which is money. That as people acquired real estate or other resources, they acquired power. That power let some of them believe that they could act like kings, buy and sell slaves, strip away people's future, their choices. But if we see someone, if we truly see them, for their potential as a human being, for the dignity, not that they earned, but that they deserve, then we can't act like Leona Helmsley. It's impossible. Because what we're saying when we act like Leona is, you're not a human. You're simply a pawn in my economy. When we offer dignity to someone else, what do we get in return? Is it, as Cicero And Seneca wrote, an opportunity for reciprocity? Does someone who gives us gratitude or favors in return deserve more dignity? Does it matter if the dignity we offer is going to someone who doesn't appreciate it? Or perhaps our acceptance of our common humanity, it's a boundary we're delighted to behold regardless of whether or not gratitude is expressed. So in today's culture, what does it mean when we say to people at the food bank, here's some food, but it's almost rotten, or here's some food, but you're going to have to wait outside for an hour and a half in line to get it. When we offer EBT or WIC or other forms of aid, and we say to someone, well, you can have some cheese, but you can't have organic cheese. You can't vote in this election Because I've decided you don't have enough dignity to be a full-fledged citizen. What have we taken away from them and from us? I went to college with a woman who was in a wheelchair. She had a 4.0. But the university regularly said to her, sorry, you can't go into this building or that building because we can't be bothered to build a ramp because it will cost too much. Cost too much to who and for how long? What are we doing here? What are we taking away from people when we start to make these rules? And as we build our economy, as marketers, as leaders, as people with a point of view, what change are we seeking to make? Is it arrogant to seek a change on behalf of others? or? Is it our obligation? I hope we can agree that if someone is drowning, we rescue them without spending a lot of time thinking about whether or not they want to be rescued. That if someone is sitting in the cold and we are around a campfire, we realize it costs us nothing to offer that person a seat around the campfire. There's still just as much heat to go around. When we give someone else directions, if they've asked us for directions, we still have directions left over. That sharing insight and knowledge and connection, not only doesn't it cost us anything, it earns us something. It gets us back to our humanity. And so back to capitalism. What happens when an organization like the Acumen Fund funds a business, a locally built, locally run business? that wants to engage with the poor. Not with the poor for charity, but with the poor as customers. What happens to our dynamic, the the social dynamic that was built around kings, when we say to someone, you are the customer, will you choose to buy this? Do you want to pay for these reading glasses? Do you want to pay for this solar lantern? When we do this, we grant the customer, the prospect, dignity. The dignity to say no, no thank you. It's too expensive, it's too big, I don't like the color, I'm too busy, come back tomorrow. This is the dignity that each of us already has and that we insist upon. The dignity of saying no, the dignity of saying yes. It is not about a handout. It is about seeing others, sawobana, right in front of our face, merely for their potential. Is it better to live in a city with vibrant public libraries, clean public facilities, and a clear path from here to there? Or does the selfish, non-benefactor mindset, when we take that mindset of, it's mine, not yours, do we lose at least as much as we gain In the short run, this idea of dignity, dignity because people deserve it, not because they've earned it, opens the door to a different kind of economy. And it's one that's based on an understanding that people deserve it because they have the potential to grow and to contribute. They deserve it because they're like us and we'd like to deserve it and we offer it. Because treating people with dignity is a way of treating ourselves with dignity. Because it's only humans that can treat other humans with dignity. It is a shortcut to finding our humanity. If we're going to treat others as customers who have a choice, that requires us to develop empathy. Practical empathy. Realizing. That this person I am seeking to serve, they have beliefs and perspectives and opinions, just like I have beliefs, perspectives, and opinions. That they have hopes, anxieties, and vulnerabilities, just like me. They have friends and family and perhaps children who love them, just like we do. That they want to feel respected, appreciated, and competent, as we do. And that they wish for peace and joy and happiness, their version of it. As all humans do. But the thing is, the thing about empathy this person doesn't want what I want. They don't need what I need. They don't believe what I believe. And they don't know what I know. And that's okay. That's okay because that's what makes us human. And so if I'm going to go to them with an offer, with an open door, with a light, with a seat at the fire, I have to begin by offering them the dignity. To say no, the dignity to make a choice. Because once we give people dignity, as Kant first wrote about, all the way up to the United Nations writing about it in the 50s, we've recast ourselves as members of a culture, of a society, of a community, not as kings, not as robber barons, not as people who get to decide, but instead. As people who care enough to say, I see you. Thanks for listening. In a minute, we'll come back with answers to your questions from last time. I'd love to hear from you. Visit akimbo.link, that's A K I M B O dot L I N K, and press the appropriate button. This is the last podcast of 2018, and I want to thank everybody who has been part of it. Our backlist is well over 40 episodes now, so feel free to go back and listen to any one that you might have missed and share this podcast with people you think might benefit. I want to thank everyone who contributed a question this year, and the generosity and the thoughtfulness in your questions has been just stellar. So thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Here's a couple questions and then some announcements. Hi, Seth. This is PJ Harran from Maryland. Love the last three podcasts on education. At the very end of the third one, you mentioned paying a quarter of a million dollars for a private school, famous private school, and if you got out ready to face the world, that would be okay. My question is, although we should reevaluate the way we seek to enter these famous schools, do you not also think that they are grossly overpriced, and something should be done about that as well. As always, thanks for the interesting topics. You are right, of course. It's ridiculous that college costs a quarter of a million dollars. It has gone up faster in price than most things for a whole bunch of reasons that are reserved for a future podcast. But let me argue that college is going to be really different 20 years from now. A few things are going to happen. First of all, I think there's going to be a really significant crisis in the middle of the market. Not the super famous Princeton's, Harvard's, Yale's, or even Tufts. And not the inexpensive and open-to-all community colleges. But in between, I think that people, particularly people whose parents are still saddled with their debt, are going to think really hard about what college is for. So let me posit that there might be four things that a college is selling when they sell a college education. The first is curation. They pick who is going there. They decide who is sitting next to you. The second one, related to that, is the cohort. Who are you hanging out with? Who is going to be friends with you 20 or 30 years from now? Who are your role models? It is possible to learn the stuff they teach in college at home by yourself in the basement, but you go there because being there, surrounded by the others, is worth something. The third one is courses, and as I've just mentioned, the courses aren't locked up anymore. Particularly if you go to a large school, the amount of time you're going to sit at the feet of a tutor, a brilliant scientist who is teaching you what she knows, is very, very small. When I was in college, one of my professors won the Nobel Prize in physics, and I have to tell you, in all of my interactions with the physics department, he might have said two sentences to me. I think that's even more true now than before. So courses, they're available, but that's the third thing. And the fourth thing doesn't start with a C, almost does, accreditation, meaning there is a scarce number of degrees from Harvard, and that scarcity imparts some value In the marketplace. But if we think about these four and the financial burden that people are facing, I think it's worth noting that we can replicate at least three of the four on our own from the grassroots. We can curate, we can start a group and pick who gets into that group. We can build a cohort, we can get together in an abandoned shopping mall every day for two years together. Someone can organize that. And the courses, well, the courses we can learn in lots of different ways. So the accreditation is the big one. But accreditation, I think, is dramatically overrated, except for licensable fields like engineering. And so I think the big shift that's going to happen is from the grassroots, whether it's entrepreneurs or peers, a gap year is going to turn into a gap cohort, is going to turn into a study group, is going to turn into a venture. And that venture a cohort, curated people who are together, learning together, pushing each other, may discover that being done with that process and having $200,000 more left to spend on your future is worth the journey. Hey Seth, this is Ian Porter de Leon from Silicon Valley. The Lynchpins Jobs newsletter has already transformed lives. I received the first one for Argent and immediately reached out to my network, but I wasn't sure if people would get it. I wasn't sure if it would resonate with people and inspire them in the way that much of your work has inspired me, but it did. A close friend of mine was so inspired, they were literally in tears. They wrote a passionate email to the founder of Argent and a connection was made. They haven't gotten the job yet, but the powerful and personal nature with which you were able to reach out to people with this opportunity changed one life forever and has given someone a new sense of purpose and a source for passion. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for this comment about linchpin jobs. Some of you may not have heard about it, so I want to tell you about the shift it is also causing in people. Lynchpinjobs.com is a free service. You can go there, sign up. Once a week, we're going to send out a job, a single job, maybe two, with a video from the person who's hiring. These are special organizations hiring special people to do special work. These are not cog jobs. They are jobs where we can't even imagine writing down exactly what you're going to do all day. And the shift it's causing is a scary one. It's a scary one for the hiring side because so many people who hire have been pushed and taught to make generic jobs for generic workers so that they're easy to fill. And it's really challenging for the person applying because if you apply pretending that you're a linchpin but actually looking for a place where you can do less not more you're going to be really disappointed in what happens in linchpin what i wrote about is the opportunity to be missed when you were gone to be the irregular piece in the complicated jigsaw puzzle not the simply easily replaceable cog in the system and so with the alt mba we decided to sponsor our own little project here. And what you can do is you can sign up for it. You can look for jobs that might resonate, but you're probably not looking for a job. You're probably really happy in your job, but you might know someone who's a good fit. So please go ahead and forward the next issue to them. And finally, we're hoping that when you are thinking about hiring, adding someone to your team, you'll figure out how to make it a linchpin job, not a cog job and that you'll submit it to us. It's free for now, maybe free forever, to list a job. We're going to be really picky about which ones we put out. If we don't find a good job, there won't be an issue that week. So that's lynchpinjobs.com. Maybe it will change the way you think about work. It's certainly changing the way some people think about work. Last announcement for the year. In the beginning of January, the marketing seminar, session six, begins. And I'm hoping you'll indulge me and just go look at the site for one minute, themarketingseminar.com. We've answered most of your questions there. It is one of the most powerful things we have built. More than 6,500 people have been through the marketing seminar. It turned into my book, This is Marketing, and it's working. So that's why we're doing it again, because people have asked us for another chance to level up. I hope you'll check it out. As we enter 2019, I am wishing you and yours a healthy and happy year where we make things better by making better things. Go make a ruckus. Thanks for listening.